Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. I'm David Rothkoff, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Rosa Brooks, a law professor at Georgetown University, a senior fellow in the New America ASU Future of War program, and the author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Also joining us from sunny California, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. She teaches Thinking About War at Stanford, Safe Passage, her book on the Anglo-American hegemonic transition, comes out from Harvard in the fall. And we also have with us David Sanger, the national security correspondent for The New York Times and author most recently of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Recently, each of our guests took time out from their roles as omniscient puppet masters operating at the true center of global power to have the following conversation. Guys, nice to be with you again. David, it's wonderful to be (laughs) reunited. joyful! It's great. I didn't think I'd ever say this, but we missed you, David. Well, we missed missed you too, David. Um, uh, We want you to know that that David Sanger and I are in a padded room, locked in a padded room. (laughs) Somewhere somewhere in Washington. I can't tell you where. I can't tell you where, but um, it's just me and Rosa and a very nice engineer. Well, you know, uh, we can't say where because our devoted fans will go spring you guys free if we do. They do. They but and Corey sounds like she's back at the bottom of a familiar well. Um, but we know because we that's we, called California. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we said this in the open in the opening <laughs> that you are actually in a studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington D.C. Uh, so if they can find that, they can find you guys. Look, let's 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 start out here. This is Deep State Radio. We're trying to go and get the perspective of the f- insiders on the inside. And, of course, everybody right now is focused on something they've never seen before, which is the absolute collapse, um, like a house of cards, although not quite as believable as the show House of Cards, of the Trump administration at every level. And so what I'd like to focus on in this particular episode is the state of the Trump administration. So let me throw out one point. Trump twittered recently that the Democrats were obstructing his appointments to key ambassadorial posts, but he's only made a handful of the appointments. And of the 600 or so nominations he's supposed to hand in, he's only handed in a couple of dozen. So 
essentially, here we are six months into the first term of the Trump administration, and there's no government where there's supposed to be a government. And and somehow, because there's so much other news, this isn't a big story. But to me, this seems like grotesque dereliction of duty. Where do you guys come out on it? Well, it's not only gross dereliction of duty, but it's they are doing it by design, right? The Secretary of State has determined he is not going to fill diplomatic positions until he has done a review of how to restructure the institution of the Department of State. That will, at a minimum, take them four months, and then they will only consider appointments after that. It will be mid-2018 before the State Department has personnel in place. If they ever do. I, I think Corey's absolutely right, as usual. Uh, and this is actually for Donald Trump. This is a feature, not a bug of the whole thing, is, is you, you get to have a government without actually having a government. Uh, because I, I'm not convinced that there will be a process at state or anywhere else that will eventually lead to filling those positions. I think in some ways he's quite happy to have those positions be vacant because he's not interested in consulting with anyone who has, God forbid, expertise, uh, and he's not interested in being thwarted, and he doesn't want to trust people not part of his immediate circle with anything. He's not even clear he wants to trust those who are in his immediate circle. Uh, so I think this works for him. Um, I'm in uh, uh, complete agreement with Rosa, which I have to say, since we're in such a small padded room. Uh, it's very wise of you. That's very, very <laughs> smart. But um, we do have to remember that you know, Rosa, Rosa often carries a gun, so... Yeah. <laughs> but not right now. Yes. <laughs> or that, uh, at least, at least that's what I'm telling you. I, I've noticed that. Um, so, a few factors here. First of all, this is the most centrally run administration we've ever seen. And since I came to Washington from a happy life as a foreign correspondent, one day, David, you'll explain to me why I did that. That's because um, well, foreign that's correspondents because, have all been canceled. Yeah, it's because President Jefferson asked you to return. <laughs> oh. See, I thought we were going to retire those jokes. Five minutes. I predicted to David yesterday five minutes into the deep state before he took his first shot. But I want you to know, David, I've turned over a new leaf. And like actually, that. what's been going on is that is that Corey and I have been practicing every day. I call her and I practice saying, "You're exactly right, David." I like you. Then I break out. Yeah. Laughing, right? Okay. Right. Talk, <laughs> so anyway, to back yourself. to the subject. Yes. Yeah. Back to the subject uh, at hand. Um, because it is so centrally run, uh, I don't think that he even particularly wants to hear from some of his top advisors. So he certainly doesn't want to hear from a group that he believes doesn't have the loyalty of having been in the campaign, doesn't have much personal loyalty to him. And if we've learned anything in the past – 130-odd days, and most of them have been pretty odd. Uh, we have learned that <laughs> Hey, that, that was pretty funny, David. Loyalty, <laughs> loyalty is – see that? I, I got one from Rosa there. Um, loyalty is, is the one feature he's most interested in. So just think about the climate decision, okay? Imagine you had had a fully staffed State Department with people rolling in saying, let's think about what this would do to the relationship with the Germans or with the rest of Europe or with the Asian countries or with Japan after uh, they had come together with the Tokyo uh, Climate Accord that preceded all of this. Um, he doesn't want to hear that. 
And as a result, I think he's figured that if he can neuter the departments, particularly the State Department, which he does not consider to be part of the national security uh, uh, infrastructure, he's perfectly fine with it. But he's not stopping there. A uh, member of our extended uh, deep state family, Susan Glasser, uh, former editor at Politico and at Foreign Policy, had a had a piece uh, uh, in Politico today saying that his own top national security aides, including Generals McMaster and Mattis, were shut out from his last minute decision to drop any reference to Article 5 from his speech at NATO, for instance, that the speech that they had seen, that they had vetted, included a line from President Trump saying, we, of course, stand by our Article 5 obligations or something to that effect. And uh, he, he Those are he the, obligations that. To the, the obligations to the U.S. will come to the defense of any... Right. The mutual defense obligations that are really the heart of the NATO treaty agreement. Um, uh, so apparently, even he doesn't even want the advice of the national security experts, the hand-picked generals he's so fond of, uh, particularly when he can get pictures of them in their uniforms. Yeah. So, Corey, are you still, you know, of the belief that getting, you know, the guys like Ma- Mc, uh, McMaster and Mattis in there, you know, the grown-ups is actually making a difference? Or as some people, including our friend Tom Ricks, have suggested, you know, maybe it's time for them to just head out. The president's not listening to them. This idea that they could make a difference is just not washing. And they are simply being used as beards for the president sitting there alone or with Jared Kushner or Steve Bannon or somebody and making up, you know, sort of crazy decisions. Well, I do think the republic will be worse off if people of sense and judgment don't keep trying. So I would rather see them remain in place, even if they are ineffectual, because uh, I think things would be much worse otherwise. I'm just back from the IISS's Shangri-La Dialogue, the big meeting of defense ministers from Asia and defense and just for our listeners, IISS is, is something, and it stands for something we can't tell you about, though. It stands for is. <laughs> It's exactly. just, never know. It's just the very long. <laughs> but it's really important. The international, and it runs the, the world. International, <laughs> the International Institute for Strategic Studies, which is the premier uh, membership organization of defense intellectuals. It defense intellectuals. To, and they published the magazine of defense intellectuals called Oxymoron. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> but, But your point, you had a point. Corey had a point. My point was that the Secretary of Defense gave a genuinely outstanding speech replete with the kind of assurances that our allies are looking for about America's commitment to the rules-based order, our enduring support for our allies, the essential contribution of trade to our security, Um, It would have been unremarkable in any other administration. It was quite extraordinary. And everything allies are asking for, and I will tell you that every single question he got asked was some version of, how can we possibly believe you given what the president says and does? That's right. So um, Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson, and General McMaster, who is still active duty, have all said the same things. And then they find themselves getting undercut. The only good news for them is that they are not alone. So here you had 
a, a just prior to our recording all of this, a Justice Department that's getting ready to go to the Supreme Court trying to argue that the travel ban isn't a ban. Instead, it's extremely selective, well-done vetting, well within the president's purview, not an intended to be a blanket ban of any kind. And the president tweets out, travel ban, travel ban. Uh, and to the point that his own allies have been saying all day that he is undercutting his chances of winning the five justices he needs to win here. Well, you, so you have this you, you have, have this it. special s- s- scene that I just I, I want to interject here into your story of Kellyanne Conway on television defending the president and her husband, a DOJ lawyer who was a candidate to be solicitor general, tweeting out that the president blew up his Supreme Court case at the same time. A, a private lawyer who, was, right. who was, was supposed to go to the DOJ and withdrew last week, interestingly. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, essentially, if you look at the NSC, if you look at the State Department, if you look at the Defense Department, if you look at the Justice Department, you've got a president who's not listening to anybody, who is actually saying things that his team tries to clear up, but it's gotten to the point, as Corey says, where foreign leaders just don't believe it. And in part, that's because... That raises the question, I mean, going back to Corey's argument that it's still better for people like Secretary Mattis and General McMaster to to stay in, even if they're ineffectual. I think that's an open question, right? Because it depends... It depends on what your your theory of change is with this administration. Um, you know, one theory, and I, I'm really torn about this. And I, until recently, like Corey, was was urging good people to go in and stay in uh, and try to minimize the craziness. And one theory is that yeah, things could be a whole lot worse, and we'll never know how much worse they could be if these guys weren't there. And thank God they're there, and we hope they stay there, even if it destroys them. Frankly, that the nation needs them to do it, even if they sacrifice their own credibility in order to do it. Of course another theory would be, number one, there's a sort of the selfish, you know, get out now before you destroy your reputations permanently. Uh, but, but, But also just the theory that people of good sense ought to abandon this administration and let it collapse faster, that all we are doing is prolonging and agonizing death here. And it would be better. This is this is a variant of the the famous statement, uh, 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 sharp wars are short, which I, I believe is from the Lieber Code. Uh, maybe maybe sharp collapses are are shorter and better for the nation in the long run. Corey? If I actually saw a path to short collapse, right? Like Like if I saw what that would be, I'd be a lot more inclined to support that position. But what I think I see happening um, if McMaster, Mattis leave the administration is that that reckless people take the, you know, luridly loyal to the president and not serious people take those positions. And then you end up with even much more dramatic damage. I actually think as bad as it is right now, and it really is bad. We are we are already incurring so much damage as a result of this administration. But I actually think it's really important for um, America's friends and enemies around the world to hear the diversity of voices, to understand that there's a struggle going on to try and rein in this administration. 
and that people of good faith, both inside and outside the government, are engaged in that. But David, if they look at that, if they look at this, what they see is the following. McMaster or Mattis give a speech. Nikki Haley gives a speech. The president contradicts it. Professional career people in the State Department contradict it. The, 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 the chief of mission in London after the London bombings um, uh, or the, the, the number two guy in Beijing, the number two guy in Beijing just resigned because he felt he couldn't support the, um, uh, the stance of the administration to step away from the Paris Accords. So the question is, is America in the world in a better place if people understand we have a big brawl going on about the direction of our country, or are they in a better place <laughs> if to people just think that we're all the nuts. president to see the pres- president of the United States uh, moving ahead without challenge? And and it's a terrible choice. It's a procrastian choice, but but I still think we are better off with good people contradicting the president and trying to persuade him uh, to take a different course than he's taking. You know, a lot of this depends on where you come down in the Rosa Corey debate about the duration of the administration. And while I hesitate to do this while locked in a small padded room with Rosa, (laughs) I actually agree with Corey on this one. (laughs) You know, one thing I want to say about the pads in the padded room is they're, they're pointy. It's really weird. They're pointy and they look dangerous. This is the heart of the... We'll take a picture and tweet this out. This is the heart of the deep state, uh, Rosa, and these rooms are used for multiple purposes. Uh, That's what I fear. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the subject of a separate broadcast. (laughs) Yes. Oh, go ahead, David. Just go ahead. Agree with Corey. Corey. Okay. Just go and see see what's going to happen to me. So um, uh, I actually... I'm not a believer that you're going to see uh, President Trump go anywhere in a hurry. I don't believe any of the 25th Amendment stuff. We've seen no impeachable offenses yet. We have seen instead a series of bad judgments, misjudgments, and as you've pointed out, ignoring the judgment of good people who he hired presumably because he wanted their advice. But if you think you're in this for the long haul, I think you've got to sort of come out where Corey does, which is you want the best talent in place. So the other day I was seeing a a very senior member of the administration who was making the argument to me that while all this chaos plays out in on Twitter and in the drama that President Trump has always had around his operations when he was in the real estate business, that in fact they're going ahead and doing the kind of long-range planning and thinking about big strategic issues that ordinary normal administrations would be doing five or six months in and that the Obama administration did as it recalculated the Afghan-Pakistan strategy in 2009. But but so what? That, so what if the uh, right, president's and then the, not that's listening? the question. If the president doesn't want to read it or hear about it or care, uh, you it, can have all the policies in the world and it would be like, uh, you know, my writing a story that nobody reads. Not that that's ever not happened. Happened since yesterday, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, but but that's the well, you know that's it, the situation I, we seem to be. 
not just in a situation where these guys are not getting traction, but where we're actually losing traction, where the president is becoming more and more unstuck from any reasonable uh, behavior. Whether, I mean, you know, it's not just things where some policy difference might crop up, like, you know, sh- you know, should we do something about global warming? But he's attacking the mayor of London for telling the people of London to keep calm, attacking an, you know, an ally in the midst of a moment of crisis. Um, he's, you know, blowing up his own Justice Department in the middle of their trying to defend him and his policies. He says he's going to hire fire Steve Bannon and those guys, and he doesn't do it. And they keep maintaining influence and driving the process. The president, you know, has people around him saying, don't tweet. And his tweets get crazier and crazier. It seems to me like he's actually disintegrating on the job and that all of this process and all of these wise people are actually looking like they have less and less influence because he's less and less moored. That may well be the case. And, you know, I I still think the most disturbing thing to people in the administration is they have to wake up in the morning, read the tweets, and then try to set, design some policy around it. Of course, that was hardest with uh, the, you know, it's a, it's a travel Kofebi, ban. Kofebi. And Kofefi and so forth. What's interesting is he didn't tweet much during his trip recently to Saudi Arabia and to Europe. He was being kept busy, and most importantly, he wasn't watching cable television. So you and think that the way wh- to save the nation is to start a conspiracy to turn off the access to cable TV and have the, the NSA House. come in and say, uh, "Sir, we're confiscating any vulnerable devices." But yeah, but, but, your, but wait, wait area. a second. He went to the Middle East, which turned out nominally better, at least in the days that took place. Then his trip to Europe and each one of the, you know, little calamities that happened around that. But now here we are a couple of weeks later. And the message that he seems to have sent to the governments of the Middle East is we are no longer going to be involved in affairs there. If you wish to go and turn some states that are allies of the U.S. against other states, if you wish to provoke um, conflict, um, we're we're no longer going to be involved as a as a as a sort of a rational voice in this discussion. Now, it may be that what you know it happened with the isolation of Qatar by a bunch of other states in the GCC is a good thing for good reasons. But in the past, the U.S. would have been more involved, and so Trump went there first, and it seems like his influence in that part of the world is either zero or actually encouraging freelancing. Is that wrong? I mean, do, do I have that wrong? I do have the sense that that other countries are have very quickly taken the president's measure and rightly understand that spectacle is the only thing he cares about. He, he can't pay the kind of focused attention to develop or execute policies to the extent that members of the cabinet can do it independently of the president, they are attempting to and are at risk of having the policy table overturned whenever the president begins to pay attention to it. But I, right, like the spectacle aspect is everything. Well, it's interesting. Now you've got Theresa May, the, you know, who should be Trump's sort of closest ally buddy in the world, 
being forced because of Trump's erratic behavior and his attack on the mayor of London, who is increasingly popular because of the way that he's handled the recent terror attack, Theresa May had to go after Trump and and attack him um, in the midst of an election campaign. I also thought it was kind of an interesting footnote that, you know, somebody in the White House thought it was a good idea to float the idea that maybe Trump would drop by England later this week without seeming to have any idea that there was actually a general election there on Thursday. <laughs> he can go to the party. Whatever yeah. No, I think that's right. As I was reading his condemnation of the um, mayor of London, the great Phil Clay tweeted out, was he looking at the bust of Churchill as he said this? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I mean, David Sanger, you, you know Trump uh, David Sanger put he, David Sanger put Trump he, in power. You made him famous. He's you the put, one who put him into power. Made him credible. And it's your fault. <laughs> um, but but one, I'm I'm curious. <laughs> you know, I was so looking forward to being back with the three of you. <laughs> now I'm sitting here staring at the pointed nature of the padded walls and wondering why I subjected myself. Because we love you. And we brought you here for for, for an accounting. Yeah. Uh, No, but I I have a question for you uh, that wasn't meant to be uh, setting you up, but a a question since you know him a little bit better. I mean, one theory of Trump is that this is fine because he's used to living his life on the theory of uh, the crazier you are, the more press attention you get, the higher your ratings are. And so everything is working out grandly. Uh, I my ratings are excellent. I've got the media are just following me around with so much excitement and joy because they never know what they'll do. And I got them coming and going and I am a winner. Is that it? I mean, is that well, I don't your theory. I don't pretend to know them any better than you guys do. I don't consider three and a half hours of, you know, interviewing him to sort of get three and a half more than we've had. God, God help you to get into someone's soul. I mean, if we, I've spent three and a half hours and more with David Rothkoff, and, Thank and his soul I, remains a dark, a dark him? hole. No, his soul, no. Absolutely. But as a, as, first of all, <laughs> um, as a member of the deep state, you know that that's not my real name, and that I can't tell you anything true about myself. And as a member of the deep state, do any of us have a soul left? Exactly. That's another question. Exactly. Right? <laughs> uh, but I, I, I would, I would say that um, everything that we have seen about him in recent times suggests that he is far more interested in the size of the crowd, the size of the headlines. He was less interested in the content of Sean Spicer's um, right. press briefings than the television ratings of Sean Spicer's. Right. So I think your analysis is absolutely right. So America the movie is going well. America the nation, not so much. That, that's right. Now, at the same time, he has a huge ability to go blame other people when things go wrong. So one of my favorite tweets in, of uh, recent times my has been tweet. the one in which he basically <laughs> in, he basically said, who let the Justice Department water down the travel ban <laughs> right. and come out with this second ridiculous version that's who going signed to the that? Supreme Court? Who, who did, did that? I'm thinking – the Justice Department. Who do they work for? You know, so the fact that he is the fact that he is willing to throw Jeff Sessions, you know, under the bus um, for for watering down a travel ban when the first one 
hadn't been nobody got consulted on, I find pretty telling. <laughs> well, but but to think about that, early that morning, Donald Trump sat in his PJs in his bed, and he started going, "Damn, I'm so I didn't angry." Need the visual, David. I, I'm okay. wondering what, I did not what cartoon character is on his PJs? Do you think? Yeah, well, that's cartoon what, character PJs. I don't know, but let's assume he's there in Yogi Bear Scrooge PJs. Yes, yeah, Scrooge. Whatever. He's <laughs> he's there in his PJs, and he's like wakes up and he's angry. Damn, I loved my travel ban. I don't like any of those Muslims. I don't think we should have any brown people in this country. What the hell? And he goes, screw the lawyers. I'm going to tweet this stuff out. And he starts tweeting it out during the morning TV shows where he knows it's going to go and attract all this stuff. Do you think you're only missing one thing? He's reacting to what he's hearing. I don't know what. Well, that right. hour. First, Whether, he has to get up and watch TV. If you could go back, you could find, if you can back up the tape by two or three minutes, you'll find on one of those morning TV shows the discussion that set him off. I'm betting. So, so but this is a. Yeah, cr- David's right. There is culpability on their part, and, and, um, he's, he is parroting what he is hearing on the least responsible networks. Well, well, or uh, well, or I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure I was blaming the media, but I did like the part where you said David was right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Right. Good. I'm glad you're. I'm <laughs> yes, glad. I'm glad we're building you back up here. But, 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 but think about that. The, the the guy has no impulse control, no perspective, no sense of consequences of his actions. Is just there reacting like. You know, an animal, a small child, you know, um, uh, somebody who has not quite got a grip on reality. And this is happening every day. And we're accepting it. We're saying, sure, sure. This guy. One of the best political cartoons. Yeah, you're exactly right, David. One of the best political cartoons I have seen shows uh, the seats around for the G7. And there's a high chair where the American flag is. (laughs) Yeah, well, but that's oh. that's 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 where it's we so are. It's so cute, guys. It's so cute. If he wasn't wrecking the world, or at least this country, yeah, would be adorable. And or I'd feel a little sorry for him because he he needs a nap and he's he's out of his depth, and it's really not fair to him. And yet he is very rapidly burning through the reputational advantage the United States has. Well, as I said, if he, if he wasn't wrecking the country and much of the world, I would, I would well, like it's to not just, First of all, I think... But put that aside. I disagree with you, Rosa. He's not wrecking <laughs> yeah. much of the world. He's wrecking the whole world. If you pull out of the climate accord, you're going after oh, David, everybody. don't be so picky. <laughs> you know, so he's, but he's wrecking everything. Now, is the, and, and there is no sign that the advisors around him have any impact. There is actually some sign that he doesn't want to appoint any more advisors. He doesn't listen to us in the deep state. I mean, you know, except to, to, to criticize us, which is very hurtful. Excuse me, but would now you? Now that's the real violation. <laughs> Good advice for I mean, not even we listen to ourselves. But... Yeah, exactly. He's saying, yeah, I'm really missing that. A couple of people sitting in a padded room with pointy <laughs> styrofoam, and I'm not listening to them. Well, yeah. it's really the only place to be. We haven't yet talked about nuclear annihilation uh, today, okay, I but knew we we'd, probably should. I knew we Just get a there. moment to note. <laughs> Just a moment okay, to so note Rosa, that <laughs> you already have our listeners in their bunkers. Yes, the as they should food. be, because well. <laughs> because here is the deepest flaw in our entire system. And you might say this is a low probability event, but it's one of those low probability, high consequence things. Um, 
the ability of the president's staff or the uh, many people in the departments and agencies that make up the executive branch to put the brakes on a crazy presidential action, as we have been discussing, appears to be pretty minimal, even in the best of circumstances. And there is one area other than uh, deciding what Trump has for breakfast, uh, where Trump also has total control nothing in between him and and implementation of the decision. And that is uh, the use of our nuclear armaments. Uh, the only thing that those guys in the deep state bunkers, deep underground, wherever the heck they are, who actually push the button on the nuclear weapons or or type in the command or whatever it is these days, uh, need to know if an order comes down that says nuke them uh, is are there the correct authorization codes? They don't get to say, well, what, is, what does Secretary Mattis think about this? Because I'm pretty sure he thinks it's not a good idea. They just have to obey. So, so I thought I would just throw that in here, folks. Well, thanks. That would be the worst case <laughs> well, scenario. For our, for our you know, first mug for deep state radio, Rosa is entirely correct. And here we are uh, 50 years out from the beginning of the Six-Day War. And we reported in the Times on the front page yesterday that, in fact, there was a sort of doomsday scenario in which Israel would set off a demonstration nuclear weapon in the Sinai if they thought they were losing. So well, I think, we're not the only place mm-hmm, that's got unilateral mm-hmm. ability. Well, I think and that's, that. that's why being in the sub-basement, third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK is the only it, the, safe place to be. Yeah. So the first mug should say, I survived the apocalypse. With the so deep far. state. I survived the apocalypse with the deep state. By the way, listeners, if you've got ideas for mugs and T-shirts and sweatshirts, we're going to do all that stuff. So, you know, send them in to us via Twitter to the accounts of each one of us and, you know, we'll share them and we'll come up with them. But I think what it sounds like is that the big winner among the deep state listeners who are out there is that you get to go into the third sub-basement where you're likely to be safe from the maniacs who are running the U.S. government. I mean, down there. And that... that's what we should do. We should auction off a little bit of bunker space <laughs> for deep state radio to finance the entire operation. That's a great idea. Off some of the little pointy, pointy pads in here. Maybe. That's right. that's I, I, could... I like the idea of a kind of there are a lot of them bomb shelter timeshare kind of deal, yeah. you know, where people could go and buy two weeks. And if they're lucky, they'll be there in the right two weeks. It's you know, in case you were wondering, it's not that expensive to buy an unused missile silo. I looked into it once, and they're 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 quite a bargain. We we absolutely could do it. We could do like a Kickstarter campaign and buy one. Uh, Are we headed in the same the direction as Major League Baseball, <laughs> where where we're going to auction off game jerseys? Well, but that could happen. But I want to go back to this, Rosa. Did you actually research this? I did. Yes. Yes. There was one in upstate New York somewhere that was only about $45,000. And I I thought seriously to myself, (laughs) that's where I could put all my canned goods. But then I remembered that I don't live in upstate New York and that it would be hard for me to get to my bunker. Oh, my God. I think I want to do I want to do a Kickstarter for us to buy an unused nuclear missile silo. You know, and I yes. think we should then, we should set it up. Deep State Radio. Think, David, with a little bit no, of styrofoam no, on the inside no, of the silo. No. We could <laughs> yes, broadcast. Yes. We could broadcast in there, and it would be the only podcast that survived. It would be the only podcast the to survive apocalypse. the apocalypse. That, and, and, and millennia from now, when space aliens come and excavate, they will, they will unearth it. And they will have their one 
insight into this civilization that once flourished here. Well, they'll find the three of us in there surviving, going, how was Corey doing out in Ojai, California? <laughs> how did it turn out for those people who were in range of those North Korean missiles? Oh, God. You know, oh. I have always thought that the Rocky Mountains were thrown up in order to just demarcate that everything to the east of them is strategic depth for my position. And everything going on in Washington only reinforces that for me now. Well, I think that's good. Now, look, we want to be balanced here in the deep state. Actually, we we don't care about that. The reality is we know the truth and we don't have to be balanced. We only have to be truthful. But let's let's in the last couple of minutes of this pilot episode of Deep State Radio reach out and try to find something that's functioning well in the Trump administration right now. Each one of you get 30 seconds. I'll go first because I already know the thing that seems to be functioning best in this administration because Wonder Woman opened with over $100 million, highest grossing movie ever directed by a female director and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was one of the executive producers. So terrible Treasury Secretary, but thanks, Steve Mnuchin, for Wonder Woman. (laughs) (laughs) That's most excellent. Uh, I will offer one that I think is going right. Um, The uh, change to the business climate with the expectation that the regulatory burden will be reduced. Yeah, yeah. Until, right. Okay. Until today when <laughs> the price of oil started shooting up. But yes, Rosa, what else is going well? That's not a, re- that's uh, not a regulatory I'm, issue. No, no, I don't think right. we would have this, this joyous encounter here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK if it weren't for Donald Trump. So I thank him. Yeah, no, no one has, no one has, no president has ever done more for the Ministry of Snark than Donald Trump. And I predict that someday, out in front of the Ministry of Snark, there will be a Donald Trump statue because we will be grateful for the golden years of <laughs> and Snark. He'll be in his pajamas. In his. May I say though, I will be deeply, deeply disappointed with our devoted listeners. I hear at Deep State Radio. If that statue is not perpetually in a state of vandalization, <laughs> yes, yes, we'll have to we'll have to make it with Teflon or something so it sort of just wipes clean. David, well, David, I'll give you two. I'm, I'm so generous today. I'm going to give you two. Yeah. So the first is he's saving the failing New York Times subscription <laughs> net, net new digital subscriptions. We're up 300,000 in the first quarter. And I have a funny feeling that had Hillary Clinton been elected, we wouldn't be looking at numbers like that. <laughs> but let me, actually give you, let me actually give you a serious policy one. So far, and I would not argue that this is going to continue, but so far, I think he's done the right things on North Korea. And the reason he hasn't I, nuked them yet. He hasn't nuked them yet. That's good. Mm-hmm. We're not at war. That's good. He has declared to all of our allies that it's not going to be like the old days where you kick the problem down the road merely because you're fearful of losing soul sooner or later. Now, I think at some point he's going to end up where all other presidents have been and he's going to kick it down the road for fear of losing soul. But for right now – He is making the Chinese and others 
do a new calculation. I don't think a strategy is going to work. But I do think it is refreshing after four presidents of two different parties who have basically said, ah, that's for someone else. Rationality. Yeah. So I would like to have an extended discussion of North Korea policy. I nominate that as a future podcast. Well, there will certainly like a be a, there will certainly be a future podcast of that. Uh, there will be two podcasts every single week until we decide there'll be more. And also, the Deep State Radio Network already has plans for other podcasts. And the reason is that we have so many listeners out there who have been clamoring to get the band back together, who felt that listening to Corey and Rosa and David and some of our other regulars who will join us soon um, was the one thing that enabled them to cling to sanity or to tolerate the insanity of the world. And so I go back to Rosa's point. One of the very best things about Trump is that it has all of us back together again in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, starting a new reign of sanity, um, and, you know, laced with, um, you know, some profanity. Uh, and and that's, that's what I hope people can expect each week from Deep State Radio. Please come back soon and join us for another episode. Be a regular subscriber. And by all means, get on Twitter, get on Facebook, Tell your friends we're back. Tell them to come and see us. Build us back to our old audience of 100,000. Listen to the ER. Listen to those wonderful podcasts at Foreign Policy. They're great Wait, people. Wait, I thought we only had 12. I think if we can get 13, we're going to be pretty happy. Yeah, that's what I meant, 13. And we got eight. I'd be happy. <laughs> listen, 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 listen to those other wonderful podcasts by all means, but come back, join us, and tell your friends to do it. We'll be back very soon. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, David. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I'm your host, and I'm in New York City today. In Washington, D.C., in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and across the ocean in beautiful Rome, sitting surrounded undoubtedly by buffalo mozzarella and tomatoes <laughs> or something like that. Is, it, so by spaghetti, by Parmesan cheese, and by Italians saying things like, prego, prego. Certainly surrounded by Italians. Um, <laughs> so let me begin in a slightly offbeat way. I'll tell you a story. Last night I went to the movies and I went to see a movie um, called Darkest Hour. Uh, and it is a movie about Winston Churchill's first couple of weeks in office as prime minister uh, after the outbreak of World War II at, a, at, at really the grimmest moment, possibly in the history of, of the British uh, Empire and 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 Churchill's own struggle with it and the struggle of the leadership uh, and sort of how Churchill achieved the decision to go ahead and fight Hitler and the Nazis. And I have to say, have I, any of you guys seen it? Just the trailer. No, I have not. No, I don't go out okay, much. I, I have to say it was fantastic. I really loved it. Gary Oldman was amazing as Churchill. You might not see that immediately, but 
you go and he completely is immersed into the role and Kristen Scott Thomas um, is terrific as Clementine Churchill and a whole cast of of, 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 of great British actors populates these other roles. Um, and of course, Lily James is in it because she's in every movie that comes out of the United Kingdom at the moment. Um, right. um, but but it's, it's, it's a really great movie. But here's what struck me. It's, it's you know, quite apart from the movie and stuff, was that this was a movie in which Nazism, fascism, and autocracy, authoritarian government were seen as existential threats, threats to the fundamental values that England had stood for, that Western civilization had stood for, um, and that they were worth fighting and dying to keep away, defeat, um, and to preserve the underlying values that our societies have been built upon. And, 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 and it really struck me because there was this, you know, this was a war. This was a, the threat was apparent and, and it seemed to be sudden. Um, and, and we now live in an era of sort of creeping Nazism, creeping fascism, creeping authoritarianism that's sort of shrouded in this kind of comic um, uh, uh, cavalcade of characters beginning with Trump. Um, and, 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 and I don't think we're taking it quite as seriously as we did then. Now, clearly, there's not a war. There, there are not Germans about to um, take over the country. But slowly by surely, surely the institutions of the country are changing. The laws of the country are changing. Um, the structure and the way the country operates is changing. The values of the country is changing. And this could be the kind of slow motion equivalent or kind of a, a, the onset of a, of a Nazi rot as opposed to a blitzkrieg. And I, I, just, I just wanted to start off our conversation by getting some reflections on the creeping threats and whether or not we take them seriously enough, Ed. Um, so I think, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely intending to see this this movie, especially after the rave review um, that you've just given. Um, but I think that that darkest hour, that seven days in May, I think it's sort of drawn from that Lukacs book, that wonderful book, Seven Days um, uh, in London. Um, th- that, that sort of comes... Uh, you, you know, at the apogee uh, of the of the Nazi fascist threat, um, you know, when the the only country holding out Britain, um, because America, of course, was neutral still at that point, although very actively pro-British neutral, um, and Russia was still the Soviet Union was still in this uh, pact with the Nazis. That 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 moment is not comparable to where we are. We're kind of, if we're going to use that parallel, in, in the early 1930s. Um, and and of course, throughout the thirties, Churchill was was one of the one one of the lonely figures, um, along with members of the Communist Party, um, until the Nazi Soviet Pact, um, who said that we have to defeat Nazism. There is no appeasing. There is no trucking with. There is no compromising with this unstoppable menace. And the Communist Party said that, 
And a lot of people who would not otherwise have been communists in the 30s joined the Communist Party because it, because it, it took that stance. And from the British point of view, you had the Labour Party was pacifist and, you know, disarmament uh, and therefore completely misread the nature of the threat. And I think we're probably in that kind of messy stage at the moment where there are, as you rightly say, forces that are illiberal, that oppose our way of life, that oppose the institutions that uphold our way of life. Um, uh, uh, But we're all rather confused as about uh, about the nature of this threat, whether this is just a brief and rather comic operatic, um, but not tragic um, aberration, or whether this really is a deep structural challenge to everything we stand for. And I think we are sort of, we're divided in our diagnoses of what Trump represents. Um, and indeed what events like Brexit mean. And and therefore, there, there isn't anything like a popular front, a united front uh, against this. There is just a lot of confusion. Um, uh, but uh, I have to say also a lot of, a lot of wonderful um, journalism and some brilliant podcasts, by the way. Well, the, you know, there's no question about that. But let me pick up on a point that, you know, Ed made on the last episode, um, Corey, and that is that, you know, it's not just what's happening in the United States. Um, Trump is cozying up to a bunch of folks. And if they were just people like Putin in Russia, which is arguably a declining country, or Erdogan in Turkey, which is a regional power, but which couldn't really have greater power, um, it, it would be one thing. But But it's also Xi Jinping who's you know, leading the most ascendant country in the world and is undertaking the most sort of authoritarian tack that country has taken um, in in several decades. Um, or Narendra Modi, who is, you know, while still operating in a in a democracy, is is operating in a in a in a more controlling way. And if you look across most of the world, the trend is in this direction. And even in parts of Eastern and Central Europe, um, you see some hints of this. And of course, there are right-wing parties in Western Europe where you see some of this. And I'm just wondering, you know, are we, you know, is this the frog test? You know, is the temperature being turned up in the water and we're just not going to notice until it's too late? No, I think people are noticing. The question is whether they will do anything about it. I am more hopeful than you, David, that our institutions are passing the test, that Americans are getting educated about computer hygiene and fake news, and that we care about um, the decisions that our courts are making to constrain the executive and to, and to embolden the Congress to act on the people's behalf, that celebrating the great journalism that is being conducted by American news organizations and others, Ed Luce, (laughs) um, uh, is I actually think our institutions are passing the test and it's a very hard test that the Trump administration and the politics of our time are administering. So, So the good news is we're passing. The bad news is so far. Uh, and the erosion of norms that you mentioned, I think, is hugely important. Uh, I, I deep in my dark heart fear that Americans 
50 or 100 years from now, we'll look at the last 10 years and title the book Lengthening Shadows. Uh, because the patterns that we are experiencing right now ought to have been evident to us earlier, right? If I, I loved John McCain's essay in this week's Economist about defending the liberal order and the fact that we got complacent after the Cold War and didn't, and we stopped thinking that we still have adversaries, we even still have enemies, and that they are smart enough to fight us, not to our strengths, but to our weaknesses. And we need to be serious and committed about defending our free societies. I am hopeful that, that, that typically our country and other free societies are slow to mobilize, but quite durable in their commitment to defending themselves. I think that's the story of World War II, and that I hope will be the story of our time. Okay, Rosa, this is where you come in and start grabbing at the tiara of optimism. <laughs> this is where I come in and I sneer at the tiara of optimism and we reclaim the, the thorny crown of entropy. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, I think I would emphasize Corey's phrase, so far, um, and I'm not totally sure we are. We are passing even so far. Um, you know, we're only 10 months into the Trump presidency here. And although there have been significant signs of resilience um, in the courts, uh, in the press, et cetera, in the United States, there have also been significant, equally significant signs of real structural weakness uh, when it comes to uh, our voting system, when it comes to uh, gerrymandering, when it comes to Congress and Congress's apparent inability slash lack of interest in putting the brakes on Trumpian excesses. Uh, and, you know, think about, I mean, just to take, for example, the courts, right? Trump has been nominating people like crazy to the federal courts. These are lifetime appointments. Uh, there is a constitutionally created process for impeaching federal judges, but it is rarely invoked and extraordinarily difficult. Not quite as difficult as impeaching a president, but awfully close. Um, and Trump has been nominating people who astonishingly are getting the American Bar Association's rating of unqualified. Most presidents don't even bother to nominate people who they aren't confident will get a, a much higher rating. And we're not talking here just about it. We're not talking about all about ideology. We're just talking about people who have zero legal experience. And I speak as someone who would also be wholly unqualified to serve as a federal judge. Uh, so I can I can I, I know one when I see one. Right. Um, and and if these folks get through and they are getting through uh, uh, because the Senate is not stopping them. Um, if these folks continue to get through, this is going to shape those very institutions that we depend on, such as the courts, for decades to come. Uh, you can't get rid of these guys once they're in. They're mostly guys, I should say. Not all, uh, but mostly. Um, you know, they're there. They're there for decades. They're blithering idiots. They're blithering idiots for decades, um, blithering right-wing idiots for decades. Uh, and that's going to hurt us down the road. You know, we may not feel it now. But so, so I, you know, the, the, the frog metaphor is, is obviously unfair to frogs. Frogs are much smarter than that. Frogs jump right out of boiling water because it's very unpleasant for them. And they, they immediately hop out when the temperature gets uncomfortable. But we, we are not obviously as smart as frogs uh, ourselves, however. Um, so I worry that we are, while we're, while we're busy patting ourselves on the shoulders quite appropriately for the ways in which our society has mobilized to resist uh, various uh, 
Trumpian excesses and so forth, uh, we are missing the various ways in which bad things are being further entrenched. And, and here's, here's yet another example. Uh, the attacks launched on the media, uh, I think that the types of actions that we have seen uh, uh, owners of media outlets take against media outlets that are speaking out, the, the sale of Time magazine, uh, fueled in part by money from the Koch brothers. You know, the, the long-term trends are not that great, actually, that, that we've got good short-term stuff, but some pretty troubling long-term stuff. Well, you know, Ed, one of the long-term things is, is, is the transformation of the judiciary um, into this sort of wingnut paradise that Rosa is talking about. Another one of them, however, is has to do with the the not the sort of ugly marching in the streets, white supremacy of Charlottesville, but the more subtle forms of white supremacy of a president who only nominates white men to federal judgeships, um, whose cabinet is primarily white Not men. Not just judgeships. Well, that's what I was getting at. Who, who, who's primarily dominating white men to most of the positions in the government and is on a regular basis baiting or calling out or trying to make political hay from attacking African-Americans or attacking Mexicans or attacking people of Islamic heritage, or most recently in one of the most stunning boneheaded moves in the stunning boneheaded career of this you know, moron who is the president of the United States, you know, thinking that somehow he was going to score a few, you know, happy-go-lucky points with these Navajo code talkers uh, by making an Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas joke, which is not the first time, by the way, in his career that he's, um, you know, been insensitive to the interests, needs, and dignity of. Um, he's just so busy in, making American great again, as he tweeted. In, 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 right, indigenous Americans. But, but you know, this is the, 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 we are baking racism into the cake again. Yes, um, yes, we are. We're, we're lowering standards that will be very hard to raise again. Um, we're um, baking an extraordinary incivility and cynicism and just tawdriness into into public discourse, um, alongside uh, the, the the lowering of the bar for, for 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 racism, misogyny, and so forth. So yes, there is all that. That that there's. And it's indisputable those trends are going in in, in the in the wrong way, unfortunately. Um, the uh, sort of larger picture here that I, I think we should we shouldn't sort of take our eyes off, uh, or at least a, a, another perspective, is is the economic backdrop, is the sort of insecurity of life for many Americans, whether they voted for Trump or for Hillary. Um, whatever their whatever their political background, and the precariousness of uh, of of being um, anybody other than a member of the elite in most of the West nowadays, including America, and the fact that if you know the one piece of legislation, major legislation, Trump has a chance of getting through the tax uh, misnamed tax reform, actually the 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 the, the, the tax cut. Um, gets through that is going to make that 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 existence even more precarious. There'll be um, over over the years to pay for this big corporate tax cut. 
there will be uh, an erosion of various benefits that the middle class rely on. Um, it won't be visible in the first three, four years of the bill. It'll be in the latter half of the of the 10-year window in which it's framed. But, uh, you know, the picture here is that not only is Trump not addressing the economic insecurities of Americans that helped, you know, create the climate that got him elected, but he's actually making them actively worse. That This is a plutocratic, plutopopulist textbook um, uh, move um, by President well, it- Trump. And and I think that brings us to another really really important point here. And I don't think it's one that's perhaps as well understood or or easy for some people to accept. And that is this: Donald Trump is an idiot. He is <laughs> David, but ins- I, but I want to know what you really think. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to get there. He's an <laughs> idiot. He's um, incompetent as a leader. Uh, he is um, a bad human being, um, and his impulses are beyond his control and dangerous simultaneously. But for all of these things, Donald Trump is not an outlier to much of the Republican Party in the United States. On tax reform, on uh, removing regulations, on supposedly the issue of strengthening the military, on um, cutting back on civil rights and protections of civil rights, Uh, and a whole host of other issues. His views and the views of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and the majority of the Republicans in the Senate and the majority of the Republicans um, in the House of Representatives and many governors are completely aligned. In other words, he may be an outlier in terms of American history and he may be an outlier in terms of values and in terms of what we might think of as a president, But the drift of the Republican Party has taken them into a territory where he's not that much of an outlier for them. Corey? Well, I'm sure glad this is a podcast about foreign policy and not just about (laughs) uh, American domestic politics. I do think that we are in a fight for the soul of the Republican Party. And to this point, principled conservatives who believe uh, in the policies that have made us safe and prosperous for the last 70 years are losing that fight. Uh, And yet, I believe we will eventually win it. But we have a lot of work to do, not just to change people's attitudes, but to change people's hearts about this kind of stuff. I do think, uh, just to make you feel a little bit better, Corey, um, that the Democratic Party is not in better shape. Um, I'm, I'm the issues that Ed raised um, about the sort of yawning uh, gap of inequality, the growing inequality between the richest and the poorest, the, the, the sort of hollowing out of the middle class, the the erosion of economic opportunity, threats to the future of work itself that we don't know what to do about. Um, and you know, these are on the one hand, these are these are all uh, trends that are driven in part by global technological and economic changes. On the other hand, we have exacerbated them through uh, active subsidies for corporations uh, and, a, and a complete failure 
to to take seriously what is happening uh, and to think about the role of government in ameliorating it, whether whether that goes to uh, investing in education and job retraining, uh, or whether that goes to income support for people in areas that have uh, essentially lost their economic core, et cetera. You know, the the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is as guilty as the Republican Party right now, I think, of a, a total failure to either think creatively about how to address these issues uh, and a total failure to think about how to talk to Americans in a way that is not divisive and doesn't doesn't increase divisions. And that that breaks my heart. I, you know, I do think the Republican Party is 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 a complete mess is is collapsing entirely, um, but I'm not sure the Democratic Party is doing any better. So Ed, let me shift the focus a little bit here because part of what we're talking about here is a is a is a collapse or a or a or a dangerous drift among the two major political parties in the United States. But when I look at Europe, when I look at the UK, or when I look at at France, or when I look at Germany. I see something similar. I see political parties that that seem to be past their sell-by date, offering ideologies from the 30s and 40s and 50s, um, and 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 alienating or not winning young supporters and creating fringe groups um, that are that, that that are responses to their their sort of ineffect ineffectiveness. I'm just wondering if you if you see sort of broader trends, you know, in Europe, for example, that are akin to those in the U.S. Yes, I do. I mean, uh, you know, each country's playing it out slightly differently. I, I, but I, they 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 have these trends in common. I was in um, the Netherlands in Amsterdam last week for a conference, and uh, you know, they've just completed the formation of a four-party coalition government, and it took them seven months to negotiate all the sometimes comically sort of petty details of the terms and who gets which ministry and they each everybody's got to get to shadow each other because the parties don't trust each other and each get little to- token gimmicky um, sort of political points um, included in the coalition's program and this is a complete mess you know it, it's simply the center holding for the sake of it and this is kind of the kind of thing, you know, if we're going to talk about 1930s analogies that the extremes feed off mm-hmm. is that they will do anything to stick in power, but without having any principle um, uh, to to execute when they're there. They're, they're holding office, but they're not exercising power. They are they are the, they are the old world and they need to be swept away by a new order. And, you know, that's why these neo-Nazis, the alternative for Deutschland, that's why their party's called the alternative. Because, you know, the SPD, the CDU, the FDP, they can all be painted as basically the same people with just minor differences in hue. And as you know, in Germany, we've got, um, you know, a new round of coalition negotiations that Merkel is trying to undertake after the first round collapse. So a Dutch situation uh, developing there, too. Um which leaves us with Macron. I'm not even going to mention my own country because it's just not necessary. Um, but le- which leaves us really with Macron, um, whose you know opinion poll ratings are just dropping through the floor. 
you know, he, he, his, his um, optimistic tiara is very much um, a, a thorny crown of en- entropy pretty quickly. And his great hope, his great gamble is to have a German partner in power who together with him can reform the sadomonetaristic rules of the Eurozone and make it a, a more reflationary, employment-friendly um, club, the Eurozone club. And that prospect diminishes by the day. Merkel is is not quite a dead woman walking, but the beginning of the end of, of, of Merkel and her, her, her era is now within sight. So Macron, you know, doesn't even have the promise he had a month ago. As I said, I'm not going to mention my own country, although I, although why not? Um, it, it's I mean it's it's really it's in, it's in such a comical um, situation um, that that were it not tragic, we'd all be laughing our heads off. But it is a very tragic thing that's happening in Britain, um, the country that you know I, I think embodied at least on that side of the Atlantic pragmatism, uh, common sense, um, and the sort of. Uh, the ability to fashion solutions, however messy, is becoming something quite opposite to to anything that I thought was sort of bred into British political history. And the consequences are going to last a generation, if not longer. And and it's it, 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 they are greater than everything I've been talking about um, in in France and and the Netherlands and Germany. This is permanent, long term damage to all of our futures um, in Britain. And and that may be the worst example of them all, worse even than what is, what is happening in Trump's America. Well, let me go back to Trump's America then and ask a question to Rosa. One of the things that the United States has sort of depended on over the course of, of, its, of its history is respect for the rule of law. But the president of the United States has taken a, a kind of a bold stance on this, which is laws don't matter unless they're enforced. And I can do whatever, you know, as president, I can do whatever I want in terms of emoluments, clause of the Constitution. If nobody enforces it, it's not a real thing. I can appoint people to jobs, you know, or I can interpret the law with regard to the Consumer uh, Protection Agency, you know, Financial Protection Agency, how I wish to, and 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 let you know, let's fight it out in the courts. And this is kind of how he's, he ran his company, which is I will break the law. Or I will sail close to the wind with regard to the mm-hmm. law until somebody reins me back in. And because of the Republican Congress, there's nobody inclined to rein him back in. Do, do, do you, as a lawyer, you know, as a as a teacher of the law, see, you know, worry that this can have a corrosive effect, or do you think there's going to be a big snapback on that front? Well, I I do think that the betting on whether Trump ends up being indicted. Uh, is I you know at this point I would put good money on Trump ends up indicted. Uh, that doesn't mean he ever goes on trial. It doesn't mean he ever serves a, a millisecond of jail time. I think he, I think he either gets pardoned or he pardons himself or you know he's 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 impeached or resigned and and there's some sort of political settlement that does not result in him being in the dock. But but I think at this point. At this point, the indications between Mueller's investigation, uh, between ongoing investigations of Trump and Trump family activities uh, by uh, in, in New York, for instance, um, I, I think he is going to face charges um, at some point. And I think he is going to be legally and politically disgraced um, ultimately. Um, 
that doesn't mean that you know. I, th- I think I think you're right that sort of in the meantime, uh, in the meantime, the the corrosive effect of having a government that has indeed become such a kleptocracy um, is really devastating, and and the 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 long term the long term implications impact of that will go beyond Trump himself and go beyond Trump's fate. And it, it does highlight something that, that we've talked about before, which is that the rule of law in in many ways is a matter of culture as much as a matter of institutions. Um, the institutions are really important. I don't mean to suggest that they're not. And I, I talked earlier about my fears for the institution of the judiciary, for instance, um, uh, and its independence and and the quality of the uh, those on the federal bench. But but it's also a matter of culture, and I think that you know we one of the things that that is so shocking about Trump and his circle to both political parties is that it is it is destroying whatever remained, and there was not that much, but there was some sort of bipartisan commitment to some degree of self-restraint, some degree of, you know, yeah, you may be in this ultimately so that you can enrich yourself when you get out of Congress, you go to a K Street lobbying firm and you make money off your contacts and so on. But you pretend that that's not what you're doing. You know, that there was sort of a bipartisan commitment to let's at least pretend that this isn't all about personal enrichment and getting away with as much as you can. And and the, the sort of the Trump family circus in town doesn't even pretend anymore, you know. And the the example that that sets is, it's just it's shocking. Uh, it's it's hard to even know how to respond to it because it is so shocking, you know. And again, I I think the only good thing is is, you know, if we get through this, maybe it sparks a real reaction that is not just seized upon and taken advantage of by extremist parties of the far right, but that also serves to revivify you know, a, a a progressive form of populism that says that's not what we need in this country. We do not need a group of kleptocrats out to enrich themselves uh, and to skirt as close to the law as they possibly can. So who knows? You know, I, I, I don't I don't assume that this ends badly for everybody. I, I I think odds are higher that it ends badly than that it ends well, but there is a there is a slender possibility that it ends up sparking a a revivified form of progressive populism that is rule of law oriented rather than just a further decline into uh, you know Nero Neroesque fiddling and and burning. I hope. I hope okay, that's... so Rosa really is wearing the tiara of optimism. Well, it's sort of a shrinking tiara with kind of grubby rhinestones that are falling off. <laughs> like one of those little town uh, clown party hats. <laughs> yeah. The, the tiny little hats that go on the side of the head and are frightening <laughs> everybody. Um, yeah, well, it's possible. But, you know, Corey, in the past couple of episodes, we've been talking about essentially – a void that's being created by the reduction of the United States government into an inert, uh, inward-looking, infighting, dysfunctional entity led by a man who doesn't want to engage in the world. But life goes on. The economy of the world is growing, and uh, the rich are certainly getting richer. And if these tax bills ultimately make their way through. The rich in the United States are going to get richer and big companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger everywhere in the world um, and having more and more reach everywhere in the world. And it raises a question, which is, 
is one of the things that we're seeing the government receding and that other organizations are stepping up and saying, no, we'll take care of it. Let us guide you on this. Let us play the role. And, you know, Goldman Sachs and the financial community saying, let us set up certain kinds of parameters and, and let us be the diplomats and let's negotiate uh, what we need to see here. And, and uh, Facebook and Google and others saying, you know, we'll be the diplomats. We'll go out there and we'll set global standards and we'll spend whatever the money we need to. And are we seeing a kind of, I mean, this has been around for a while. The question is, in the current moment, is the relative influence of these big corporations as the drivers of global policy changing? That's a wonderful question, David. So about 10 years ago, a University of Texas and Columbia law professor, Philip Bobbitt, wrote a book called Shield of Achilles that argued that the, the nation state as we've known it was giving way to what uh, was giving way. And I thought I saw a fair amount of corroborating evidence, right? If you look at the global ban on landmines uh, that picked up so much momentum, that wasn't something driven by governments, that was driven by private citizens. Um, and, I, and, and so you get momentum for replacements for government. But the problem with that, both in theory and in practice, is that only states are empowered by their only in free societies. States are empowered by their citizens to make trade-offs between competing goods, right? Between tax rates, uh, deficits, and social services and defense. Um, and nothing that is not that doesn't have the aggregating powers of the state is properly positioned to address those trade-offs on behalf of the society, nor are they, nor is there the accountability loop that elections and governance provides. So I I do think we are seeing more and more of that, and we are certainly seeing it with the Elmore Leonard-style grifters in the Trump White House and, and in his some of his senior appointments. I'm thinking of the picture of the Treasury Secretary and his wife at the moment. Oh. <laughs> uh, but, but we're also seeing it with, with companies, businesses having outsized influence in the shaping of legislation in a way that is not transparent to the American public. And we, we also see it in the way that um, social media is operating outside of the regulatory framework of the Federal Elections Commission, but having enormous influence on our politics. I, I really hope Robes is right, and that what you're headed towards is a sort of 1890s um, controlling the power of big business and outside forces over governance. So Ed, first of all, I have two questions for you, but let me begin. Corey makes a good point bringing up the Philip Bobbitt book. Can you think of any other big books that were written a few years ago about the rise of corporate versus governments? Um, uh, there was a very good book by um, Raghuram Rajan, the, the 
um, from Chicago University and Luigi Zingales, both from Chicago. Rajan went on to become the governor of the Central Bank of India. Um, and uh, Luigi Zingales is still there, called um, Capitalists Against Capitalism. Um, and they made the point that basically pro-business parties nowadays are not pro-capitalism at all. They're pro-capitalists and that the two are completely different things. Um, and that that's the kind of corrosion we're seeing in terms of the lobbying power and influence over legislation in Washington, but also in other Western um, capitals. It wasn't a bestseller, but it was a diagnost diagnostically very brilliant book. And I think it's... I, I was almost certain you were going to bring up Power Inc. Oh, well, of course. I'm sorry. Power Inc. is um, by you, another brilliant book. But you, you said, yeah. can you think of any books? <laughs> can, you, can you think of any books? Which plural? would make a good Christmas present or Hanukkah present or New Year's Eve present or really or, Ramadan or, 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 or Passover, yeah, or, kind or of or any present. Or if you have a table and a legacy. <laughs> yeah. A weapon. Um, a weapon. No, no, I was actually going to bring up Power Inc. Um, yeah, uh, and. <laughs> let's let's just let's just leave that aside a second, and I will um, not mention your most recent book. <laughs> uh, but, but, you, but I will mention this really good article that you did about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, and about the trouble some of these giant organizations are having adapting to playing a political role, and um, the you know I mean Facebook is seeking to be the largest community on the planet Earth, bigger in its intentions in any way than the two biggest countries on Earth added up. And, and it clearly has to play some kind of political role, but it is fumbling left and right on that. You wrote brilliantly on it, and I just thought you might want to talk about that. Uh, so I am, um, uh, 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 you know, I think Zuckerberg is an extraordinary emblematic figure of our, of our times, because on the one hand, he, uh, he heads this enormous um, platform, Facebook, you know, with, as you say, you know, like close to 2 billion users with aspirations to be basically the global platform to recreate the communities that we're all losing, that we can all do this online. The extraordinary sort of breadth and scale of ambition from, a you know, a 30-something-year-old uh, uh, that, you know, is very befitting of... of the Times and the West Coast nowadays. Uh, so there's that on the one hand. Uh, the, on the other, there is this, you know, if you'll permit me to be a little bit um, rude, there's this guy suffering from acute autism who doesn't understand other human beings. And it's, you know, made apparent every time there is an unscripted interaction with them. Uh, most recently on this um, tour of, uh, you know, this national conversation he's been trying to have with America, and I think what was a sort of stillborn uh, attempt to feel out the ground for a presidential or at least some kind of political um, uh, launch. Um, and the irony of this, this at least politically autistic guy owning um, and running the largest social media platform in the world is, is really quite extraordinary. And I think, uh, you know, as I say, emblematic of, of, of where we are and another piece of that uh, is that Facebook, you know, uh, claims to stand for progressive values um, and for inclusion and, and conversation and connect connectedness and so forth. Um, but it also represents extraordinary inequality of wealth that we have um, in today's world and um, extraordinary few jobs that our great sort of 
brand name success stories are creating. Uh, and um, I don't think Zuckerberg's aware of that. Well, let me add another layer to that just to be provocative. I mean, Corey, Corey said a few minutes ago that uh, – you know, only the state can can not these private organizations can sort of aggregate preferences uh, in order to truly represent a, a nation's interests when it comes to foreign policy or, or anything else for that matter. Of course, if I were Mark Zuckerberg, I would say, "Ho ho ho!" You know, that's that's so 20th century of you to think that only the state can successfully aggregate preferences. The state, it turns out, is terrible at aggregating preferences. Um, uh, voting is a terrible method to aggregate preferences. Uh, as we know, a, a embarrassingly low percentage of Americans uh, actually bother to go to the polls, even in presidential election years. Uh, and we have so badly screwed up our, our voting systems and electoral districts that there is ample reason to doubt that our system of represent, representative government uh, is, is, is in fact capable of representing people's desires, will, wishes, preferences, etc. Uh, but, but here I, Mark Zuckerberg, I'm here to tell you, I know what people's preferences really are. And I know it at a level of much greater granularity and much greater authenticity because people, well, they lie to pollsters, they don't bother to vote. Uh, even if they do vote, it, it may not turn out in a, in a way that reflects their preferences, but but Facebook knows everything. I know everything about you. I know all of your 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 secret preferences. And if you are looking for an entity or an individual, you, you, emotional intelligence is overrated. Algorithms are underrated. You know, I can be as autistic as I want to be because uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, and if you want to entrust anybody to to represent the world to itself, uh, surely it should be Facebook. It's sort of Power Inc. combined, combined with Superclass. Good point. I realize it's completely <laughs> Orwellian. <laughs> Surely it should be the people who are becoming billionaires with zero right. accountability. No, no. And and yet I also think, you know, we, we ignore it at our peril, right, that, that the people, you know, revealed preference. Um, people, it turns out, don't really care that much who's in the White House. If they actually care, they would show up and vote. But they do care very much about certain things as indicated as what they like by what they like on Facebook and how much time they spend on it and what they click on and so on. Um, and and I think, you know, I think we have to actually grapple with that, right? It's a problem. It's a it's a it's a. It's a threat and a dilemma for democracy, but I think we, we can't ignore it. It's, a, uh, it's an interesting moment. And I was thinking um, that as you describe the way Facebook has enabled communication, it sounds a little bit like the kind of communication that is sometimes attributed to people who are on the autism spectrum. In other words, you don't have to read eye contact. You don't have to look at another person. You just have to memorize person. a bunch of emojis. You don't. You no. You it's 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 reduces it to a very kind of binary algorithm, uh, uh, intellectual level, which some people who are on that spectrum are very good at, and it takes away all the things that they're not good at: being close to people, uh, judging their emotions, judging their body language, judge you know, and so on and so forth. And it's just kind of an interesting. 
manifestation that somebody who is kind of maladaptive becomes really good at creating a way for people to interact that he might be comfortable with, but that it doesn't actually reflect the way people really interact with each other. And that has drawn complete <laughs> well, silence. Because it turns yeah. out that is how people interact with each other now. Yeah, you, you're trying to interact with us, David. And, yeah. we, and, and if you would just send us uh, you know, a tweet, we could interact with him more successfully. Yeah, that was way too human. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> that, that so, was... so sorry, you know, in New Jersey, we're raised to communicate with people in a diner over a bagel. <laughs> And and anything that doesn't involve a diner and a bagel, I'm really not extremely effective at. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's just me. Uh, in any event, uh, I think this is quite interesting. There's a shift going on, and uh, some of it is a short-term shift as the U.S. government dysfunct- is dysfunctional and, and uh, pursues certain paths. Some of these are longer-term shifts. Um, the nature of the balance of power in the world is certainly shifting. We talk about this in some form or another in every single episode. But this is um, a, a ripe moment. And, and we could head off and, you know, if they pass a tax bill and all of a sudden it drives inequality much more greatly. And, of course, this tax bill has got a hidden component to it, right? If they pass the tax bill, they blow up the budget. And then they're going to have to cut the deficit. And the way they're going to have to cut the deficit is entitlements, because that's really the only way to get at it. So it's a kind of one-two punch against the middle and the the, uh, uh, more uh, lower middle classes in the United States, because uh, it's going to get them now, and then it's going to get them again on that thing. Inequality will grow. The rich will benefit. And they'll operate on a different plane with a different kind of politics. And the rest will be you know, in Facebook, liking things, I guess. Um, well, that's that's a kind of disturbing place to leave us all, but that's where we are. For Corey Shockey, of course, it's better. She's in Rome. That's a good thing. Um, for at least, and, and, and Rosa, they're in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, um, which is a lovely place, by the way, and hopefully many of you will get to see it. Uh, we, we did have, by the way, a number of people who, you know, all, you know, in fact, one, I, I think Rose immediately signed up, but identified a n- nuclear missile silo in Kansas that you was being b- rented out as an Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were thinking, well, maybe, maybe we could do a, a broadcast from there if they have Internet or we could throw a party for our listeners. You know, we will be, by the way, in January announcing a series of deep state radio live engagements in different destinations so that you can come and be entertained by your favorite deep state radio live characters and you know possibly we'll have small action figures of rosa and Corey and ed and <laughs> david sanger <laughs> oh, excellent i like the action figure ideas yeah no i think and there's spirit animals it'll be fantastic Need us the cover of my book please yeah, no, no, I think it's really good. In fact, I have this whole image of the, you know, remember when you were a kid and you get these farms, you know, you'd get a barn and then inside there were all these little animals and you could lay out little fences and play with the little animals and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe we could make a silo and then put inside of it little <laughs> deep state radio characters. <laughs> <laughs> 
people could play with them and there'd be Rosa Brooks's dog and Corey Shockey's horse and Ed Luce's bear. And, <laughs> and then the real ones. I don't know. There's some promise. <laughs> well, deep state radio nerds, let's, let's see your drawings. Let's, let's see your best suggestions on that front. Uh, and please join us again next week. Uh, when we will have another enthralling episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Corey, Rosa, and Ed. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, We know where to find you.